Hello and welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee along with Amy Donaldson. And today we are joined by political con consultant Ann Dent and Jim Curry, who's a political science professor at the University of Utah. And we are going to discuss what has been I've been waiting for for a very long time to say, the, uh, the end of what I hope is the Donald Trump political era in the United States. I keep my fingers crossed that is true, but I, I know that there is a pretty good chance that what I just said is a pipe dream. But we'll keep up. We'll keep with a positive attitude. So, Jim, uh, this is right up your alley. Um, your thoughts about what, uh, what, what occurred on Election Day? Well, what occurred on Election Day is we had a very fairly clear victory for Joe Biden. Obviously, it didn't appear that way. It didn't feel that way in Election Night because so many of the ballots had to trickle in or at least count the count of them had to be trickled in over the subsequent few days but you're in a position now where you have joe biden up by almost six million votes nationally has clearly cleared the bar in terms of electoral votes and is likely to get a couple more um and yeah i mean you're in a situation now where the president doesn't want to concede doesn't want to admit his loss he wants to press all of his potential legal challenges to see how far he can go but uh, these aren't challenges that seem to be likely to result in anything other than an eventual Biden victory. And so it's, you know, as usual, we're in an unprecedented precedented situation where we have a president who's busting the norms that we're used to in this country. But um, in many ways, we also have a conventional result in that we have one president who's had one candidate who has a clear victory for presidency and another one who, despite not wanting to concede, is clearly lost. And uh, what were your thoughts? I think that um, we're all so excited for this election and the results and the results that have happened, but it's been such a roller coaster because it doesn't feel like because Donald Trump has not conceded and there are all these lawsuits and hard to feel like we have a win yet. Um, I know in my in my gut and my it doesn't feel like we can celebrate yet and i think as a nation we're just waiting to um for him to leave and to have this new president i know that that's for myself just so excited to see that for that day to happen and it's inevitable um it there doesn't need to be a concession for it to happen but we are we are so used to these um pragmatic ways and seeing them happen and and really great things a letter to um you know president elect writing a a letter or you know all these things going on between the two we're not, we're not seeing that happen so um it's hard to watch it's feels really really um rough <laughs> amy what, what were your thoughts when you saw all this unfolding so um so i i, I want to be more positive in this response than i have been because i i have become worried over time but initially i was pretty emotional about the fact that we're going to have a woman vice president um i uh i feel very hopeful about that i feel like the message that it sends is pretty awesome and so I just wanted to start with that really positive thing and then switch to the negative things. I feel like the amount of misinformation that's um, being spread, um, the intentional efforts to undermine uh, the election process, the danger that we're putting county clerks and uh, volunteers at election sites in by having these massive protests and these really strange and nefarious looking YouTube uh reports on 
I saw 130,000 ballots all for Joe, Joe Biden dropped off. I'm like, who are you? Did you look at the ballots? I mean, silly, simple questions. Um, I just feel very disheartened by that. At this point, well, actually a few days ago um, in 2016, uh, President Obama had already invited uh, pres then President-elect Trump and his wife to the White House and transition had begun. That is not the case this time. They're not giving a Biden's team any clearance. We're in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, there's a lot of reasons I feel stressed out. Um, and sometimes it's hard for me to remember that this is a historic election and there's a lot to be hopeful about. You know, uh, I know that I right now I still feel a sense of a bit of anxiety. And, and Jim, part of that is because there's still a couple of races out there that really are going to determine how the government is run for at least the next two years. And so I wanted to talk to you about this. What about the Senate races going on still in uh, Georgia? Yeah, you still have those two key Senate races. And that's part of the reason why you see both parties haven't sort of walked away from their hardline election-focused rhetoric and stances is because both parties know these two races are a really big deal. They're going to be really tight. And how they work out is going to determine literally who controls the United States Senate, who doesn't, which could have all sorts of policy implications for what happens over the next couple of years. It's part of why Republican senators in part won't sort of endorse the concept or the crazy idea that Joe Biden has won the election because they want to keep their voters attentive and riled up and ready to go in Georgia in January. And they want to keep their donors riled up and ready to go for Georgia in January. Um, and so like, they don't want to get to this point where their party feels like they've lost and they're demoralized and they kind of walk away because, I mean, really, and that's true on both sides, both sides want to keep the motivation that they've had rolling. Um, into early January before we finally have the final outcomes of this election. You know, and when I first watched all of this, I, I was it was kind of a relief to me to see that, you know, uh, Biden was going to win, even though, again, he's not my necessarily my, my ideal candidate. But I, I see as though a sense of normalcy potentially coming back to the way government is running, the way we as, as citizens can can view our government and, and view the presidency. Uh, I wanted to, what, what were your thoughts about the idea that now things are going to change potentially in the White House and, and how the world sees us? I think that um, I'm going to jump in. I think that the world right now is watching on pins and needles, um, still thinking, you guys still can't get it together. <laughs> and are you going to get it together? And bated breath here. Um and, you know, also watching um, all of, like, so many citizens, I saw this um, on the news, they were saying that on election day, people were dancing in the streets, and it was like we had, we had toppled a, you know, we had overturned a dictator, and that's what it felt like. So, and it was so joyful to watch these people full of joy, pure joy, dancing in the streets, and it was like, gosh, it, it, it this, it, but it also made me so sad because it, there's been so much hurt and pain, and so um, I I hope and pray and wish and all of the things that um, we are seen as, um, you know, we are taken seriously again, which I feel like we haven't the last four years. When we come back, I want to uh, continue our discussion a little bit about just kind of where we are in history now, knowing that uh, we we've. We have just really gone through four years of something that we'd never seen before in our country anyway, and, and what, it, what it looks like 
as we move ahead into whatever the next phase of our, uh, our you know, our existence as the United States of America will be. Uh, you're listening to Voices of Reason. back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. Along with Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. Today we're joined by Jim Curry, political science professor at the University of Utah, and Ann Dent, our friend and uh, partner here in our company, with, uh, and she's also a political consultant here locally. And I uh, wanted to kind of get a sense of, you know, this is one of those times in, in history that could be pivotal. Uh, as we look at how the government's going to be formed, uh, whether or not uh, policies will be changed after those Senate races are determined, uh, in, in Georgia, and you know, today we're, it's been 28 years since Rodney King happened. I was watching a TV show recently, uh, and they talked about how in LA, they are now in their third wave of having violence kind of, uh, not, uh, not so much violence this time, but just protest and, and discord, uh, with, uh, particularly as it relates to police, in their city streets. Uh, they had it happen before in 1992 with Rodney King, which a lot of kids uh, are younger than uh, I me. Mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that distinctly. But if you are in your early 20s or younger, you probably don't even really know who that is. And certainly if you're old enough like us to, uh, for me, I should say, to know that uh, the Watts riots happened in 1968 after Dr. King was assassinated, that too was one of those pivotal times in America where civil unrest kind of helped uh, usher forward at least some thoughts of change in how we uh, govern ourselves, how police are, um, you know, uh, treating uh, its citizens. I kind of wanted to get a sense from, uh, I'll start with you, Amy. What do you think we are in, in, in history based on what's happening right now with uh, the, the movement from uh, Donald Trump to Joe Biden? Well, I think we're at an important point where we need to realize that um, Trump is not the problem. Trump is, a, you know, a symbol of uh, some of, of issues that we have had that are sort of baked into who we are as Americans. I, I always, um, I like to think of us as a, we maybe have a, a, you know, a little either dual personality or a little schizophrenia about our, who we are. Like we have these ama amazing ideals that we seek to live up to. And we have very rarely um, actually gotten there. And I think right now we're really challenging ourselves um, and challenging each other and, and I think where we're at is at a crossroads and what is normal, what is acceptable. Um, I, I have said, or I guess I stopped saying it, that you know, the first year of, in 2015, 2016, I kept saying, you know, this is not who we are, this is not who we are, but I'm becoming convinced that is who we are, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and so we, I, I have, um, I feel like a lot of us have had a real eye opening and I think that that's gonna continue and I think now the question is where, how do we go in a positive and, and um, uplifting direction? Um, and, and at what point? Because one of the things I am struggling with is I don't want to play nice with people who are openly racist so, or openly sexist or who don't believe that everyone should have the same civil rights. So how do I, or that vilify immigrants, how do we have a political discussion when you're talking about you know not recognizing someone's humanity i don't know it's a struggle so and i hate to do this to you but you really fall in all of the categories she just named 
uh, as uh, a woman, a woman of color, and a woman of uh, previously, you know, before your family moved here, of uh, a different, uh, you know, you're from a different country. So, your, I mean, what are your thoughts on what Amy just talked about? So, um, I was thinking about the day after Trump got elected and my dad my whole street actually stayed home from work that day we were all in shock and um i the feelings of that day come back to me as i speak of this and my dad called me and i was in shock and he said annabelle those these people this is the underbelly and they have been here forever this is not new to this country it's just coming to light and i now believe that um i didn't i don't know i've always yes my family's immigrants we moved here from india and we're patriotic and absolutely love this country and i think that i've been kind of head in the sand about how rampant um systemic you know oppression is and racism and um so this donald trump four years has really, really made me see that this is our country. But also, I've seen so many people want to learn, trying to learn, open to learn. And it's just about having more uncomfortable conversations and moving forward and, you know, coming together and being better. So, Jim, I mean, you've seen, uh, seen some of this kind of as, as history relates to making these transitions from, from one time to what potentially could be, you know, our future going ahead. What what do you feel like we're looking at right now, uh, going from what has been a kind of a confusing time with uh, the Trump administration, going forward into what was quote unquote more normal, uh, probably with the Biden administration. Right. I mean, I think I think the number one thing that I think Americans need to recognize about our country and about our political system is that change comes really slow. There's a whole lot of people that want to see big major changes to our country and often for good reasons but that's not really how our political system is set up and so even in a situation like this where you have donald trump is an outgoing president you're gonna have a new presidential administration and joe biden that holds very different views on what should be done on different policy areas who prioritizes very different policy areas his party will definitely control the house and potentially could control the senate and they have very different priorities than what we've seen for the last four years, but people should realize that change is really hard to get. Change is slow, change is incremental, because it requires in our system the building of broad bipartisan coalitions to get it through the entire government structure and through the whole policymaking process, even if you have unified party control of government. So I think, well, people should expect some differences in that Joe Biden will certainly act differently as a president than Donald Trump and will certainly push for different things than Donald Trump. It's really hard to make change in our political system. And so people should be, you know, start to recognize that things will change more slowly than they tend to think that they will. So, you know, like I uh, kind of what Amy said, I, I, I feel as though we there's, there's this um, unease I have, but I know that uh, we will be fine. I, I just maybe I kind of worry about what it looks like as we make this, uh, you know, go through this process of becoming whatever it is and, and moving to whatever era we're, we're, uh, we're going to get into. And to be honest with you, that makes me nervous because when I look back at uh, our history, we, these little incremental changes, they, they are very incremental. And, and we, I don't feel like we've gone that much further from when I was first born in the 60s to where we are now. And I know that sounds kind of pessimistic, but in all honesty, 
if we're still having some of those same conversations that we were having when I was born, how, how can we say we've, we've grown all that much? Well, I think the conversations that you're talking about are definitely center more on race because gender issues have gotten better. It's better if you're LGBTQ, it's better to be alive today and, and trying to live and maybe have a, a spouse or do, do anything, build a family today than it was even 10 years ago. So definitely we're better. We're better off in, in, in every way. But the one thing we are still grappling with, in my opinion, at a pretty elemental level is race. We just cannot come to terms with the fact that we were sort of founded in, in white supremacy is, is built into everything, every system, especially our education um, and banking systems. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue this discussion. Amy started me re uh, listening to an audio book called Cast, which is all about race and, and how it's, uh, the caste system in America has developed and shaped the way our, our, our country is and it, uh, it operates. Uh, it's, it's maddening, but very enlightening, I will say. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of glad she turned me on to it, but I'm also kind of disappointed because she's only given me another reason to have an ulcer. Thank you, Amy. All right, we'll, when we could, we'll continue our discussion when we come back. You're listening to The Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. Welcome back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, joined by Jim Curry, political science professor at the University of Utah and political consultant and dent. Uh, Jim, I want to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, as we've, we've, we're kind of moving on from most of uh, the election, we've still got those uh, Senate things left. Uh, what, what did you see with regard to polling, how the media covered it? And I know back in 2016, I really, to be honest with you, I gave up on polling because they were so wrong that I just felt as though there's no reason to, to put my faith in that anymore and just kind of watch the process play out. Uh, what, what did you see in this case? So this is the way, this is my re reaction to the polls in 2020. And it's it's more of a nuanced reaction than you tend to have seen where, right, so much of the discussion has been like, either the, the polls are terrible or the polls aren't so terrible. I mean, my results, my, my reaction is basically that the polls weren't great, but they also weren't that bad and they weren't unusually bad. So it, here's the good side of polling, right? So ultimately the polls this election will have correctly called the winner in 48 out of 50 of the states in the presidential election. That's pretty good. Um, on the polling error, which exists, will probably be about three or four percentage points on average from state to state between what the polls thought was gonna happen and what actually happened, which is actually a pretty normal polling error. And in fact, it's the number amount of error that's usually built into the polls themselves. Most polls, some people know this, come with a expected margin of error of plus or minus three and a half percent. Well, that's about what it's going to be. Uh, what's notable is that every single election has a polling error of a few percentage points one way or the other. What's interesting about 2016 and 2020 is that that polling error twice has gone in essentially there's been the error away from Donald Trump. In other words, Donald Trump was underestimated both in 2016 and 2020 in the polls, which suggests there's still something out there about the ability of pollsters to get some sort of representative sample of what the electorate will look like in a way that really brings in all of the sort of Republican and Trump voters um, compared to how they've been doing it with some of the Democratic voters. So it's, they weren't great and then they weren't spot on, but we also shouldn't necessarily expect them to be spot on. And the degree to which they were off this time isn't that unusual in general or historically. 
You know, the reason I, I guess it was just maybe because what happened in 2016 was so, uh, you know, opposite of what was expected and, and even what the polling yes. told us. And, and I guess now we realize... In, in a that, way. Yeah. The polling error was almost exactly the same in 2016. The difference was that it missed on predicting the winner in more states because the, the results were so tight. Right. But had the polls were predicting Hillary Clinton would win narrowly in states like Michigan and Wisconsin and she lost narrowly, which always hits the polling industry harder when it's like, well, you got the winner wrong. Um, but really, like, you know, we should really be judging them by how close they come to the actual sort of percentage points on each one. So the plus um, or minus. They were, the plus or minus. And they were about the same both times. What helped the polling industry a little bit this time was that Joe Biden was leading in the polls and he won convincingly. And so they got more of the races right, just that more, a lot of them were a lot tighter than the polling suggested, specifically in states like Wisconsin or Florida, which had much like much more diff, like much more robust support for Biden um, than than turned out to be the case. And there's a number of reasons why that might be the case. And, you know, I think it's going to take months not years for pollsters and political scientists and other people to dig into why but you know it weren't as bad as they got the rap for on election night in part because as the votes have continued to come in the polling errors have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller so let me ask you what what is uh what's convincing uh in, a, in an election like this what's what's considered to be you know it's it's not really that close as people you know some of the times we've had like in 2000 for instance so, I mean, this is this is how I put it. The reason I don't see the election is that close is that Joe Biden presently is leading in the popular vote by almost six million votes, um, which is quite a bit. That's more than Barack Obama won nationally in 2012, which was close, but didn't get as much play as a close election as an election like this. And Joe Biden will have won in enough states to have a pretty comfortable electoral college lead. And some of those individual states are relatively close. And that's important. And that's what keeps this from being sort of like a kind of blowout that we saw more in like 1996 or 1984 or something like that where not even that many states were that close you have some states like pennsylvania and other states that were quite tight and it could have made the difference but also they tended to all go in one direction most of those tight states all sort of went for biden which makes it a situation where this was a kind of close election but also a pretty convincing win in that you know the result wasn't really that much in doubt so, Anne, do you think, uh, you know, as a, you watch this as, as, as part of your job, that uh, maybe the media played some uh, part in how we perceive this? Oh, sir, I think the media plays a huge part in how we perceive this. And, you know, as someone who works on campaigns, consults on campaigns, and then is in the community talking to people and gauging who is engaged, polls can be really dangerous because... Um, if we're seeing a candidate that is up in the polls early on, people will disengage. Some people won't even vote. So because they say, what does my vote matter? They're up this much. So I have this really love-hate relationship. Um, my opinion is much less scientific than the political science professor. My um, opinion of polls is very much love and hate. And um, not much trust in them, just because I feel like I they burn me personally, and so I, I seem to just work work hard and um, just ignore what the polls are saying. That's what we kind of say in my little bubble. You know, Amy, uh, we as the media, we we kind of get pounded from time to time by people because they feel as though we 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 have some bias and we end up shaping how people vote. Uh, what, what do you say to that? 
Well, I, I mean, I guess my biggest issue is why the, why the media or the pollsters uh, or us together, the combination of us, why do we have so much trouble gauging the support for Trump? I feel like we spend an inordinate amount of time talking with people who vote for Trump and support Trump and why they support him and, you know, what is it about his policies or whatever. We more so than we do for other people who maybe are threatened by him or, or find his policies dehumanizing. But also, we just cannot seem to get an accurate read on it. And I'm just confused by that. I think there's part of that uh, I would uh, blame on uh, people uh, they're telling the truth. I mean, sometimes people just don't want to talk to the media because they don't trust them. And so they, they may not give them a truthful answer. And uh, I, mean, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but I feel as though the reason the, the margin of error was maybe off is because people had uh, kind of bought into this idea that, uh, you know, we were part of the problem, uh, we the media, and uh, they, they didn't want to uh, contribute to any part of, of what we were doing. Uh, Jim, does that make a little sense to you? To a degree. I mean, my, my gut reaction is that the polls are probably off for two major reasons. Uh, though, again, this is all speculation at this point. One is the coronavirus, which certainly makes a difference in terms of people's people's ability, who actually showed up to vote and how they voted. Um, that We can't discount the fact that polling during a pandemic, voting during a pandemic, and all sorts of other things created a sorts of new uncertainties about who would vote and how they would vote and how we should count them and the likelihood we should consider that they vote. Second, the thing that we seem to continually to, or that pollsters seem to have had trouble with the last two presidential cycles, they will note the polls were almost dead on in 2018 in the midterms. Um, the thing that they seem to have struggled with is that Trump does drive turnout among a certain set of Republican voters that are otherwise very unlikely voters. And what pollsters essentially do is they, they sample people and they ask them whether who they're gonna vote for and they also ask them a battery of questions to try to figure out how likely they are to vote. Um, and Trump seems to have this really specific personal ability to mobilize some of those people that any any of these models seem to have a really low likelihood of voting they tend to show up and vote for him and in elections where he's on the ballot in ways that we tend to have not predicted in the past and that past behavior doesn't seem to predict that they would do so in the past so it'll be interesting to see if when trump is no longer on the ballot um, in 2022 and potentially in 2024 if that solves some of this issue for pollsters where this, these people who vote that are hard to pinpoint um, just no longer become relevant for like polling attempts. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion and maybe uh, bring it a little more local and, and talk about also uh, the, uh, a new COVID mandate that has taken over uh, in our state locally. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Welcome back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're joined by political consultant Ann Dent and political science professor from the University of Utah, Jim Curry. Uh, and Amy actually had one question. I know Jim's got to leave, but uh, before we get him out, uh, Amy, ask him uh, what, what you were thinking about. I, I'm just wondering what you think the likelihood is that Trump will run in 2024 for president. I mean... And what does that that's, do? It's, it's, that's such a tough question. It's so it's such on one hand, that's happened so rarely where a president who lost actually seriously ran 
like made a serious attempt at running years later. A number of them have talked about it or I think thought about it in the immediate aftermath of their loss. But, you know, by the time that four years go by, you're like, oh, whatever, you move on. Though it has happened a couple of times. Grover Cleveland won the presidency, lost the presidency and then ran back and won it again. Um, but that doesn't you know, it's not a it's not a super common thing, though. Again, Trump hasn't been a super common president. So if, if someone's going to do it. Yeah. I mean, if someone's going to do something that otherwise has been really rare, it's probably going to be him. Well, I, I, I hope that uh, he loses, unlike Grover Cleveland. I just I just <laughs> want to throw that out there. Uh, you know, I wanted to get uh, real, real quickly. You know, we have the, a national uh, election. Well, it's a, it's a local election that uh, impacts nationally. In the 4th Congressional District of Utah, there is a very tight race between incumbent Democrat uh, Ben McAdams and Republican uh, challenger uh, Burgess Owens. And they were literally, they were then like a thousand votes or two. And they, they still have a few days, I guess, until uh, next week before they make a decision on this. And uh, so, Anne, I want to get an idea from you. What, what do you think this, uh, how, how, the, how does this pan out? Um, two answers here. Last, this last cycle, Ben um, was behind this and came back and won it. Um, so I'm hoping that that is our um, outcome this, this year. But my gut tells me that this is 2020 and it feels like I live in CD4 and I am really happy with Ben McAdams. And if anybody has followed this race, it has been very entertaining and it, it makes, I, I'm really disappointed that Burgess Owens has procured so much um, support and really, really discouraged by this. This race has really, really been discouraging for me personally. Yeah. Jim, uh, I mean, uh, this isn't totally on, in your in your alley here, but uh, have, have you watched that at all? Yeah, I've been following. I tend to follow the congr all the close congressional races really closely. And so, you know, the Utah 4th is one of the closest in the country. And, and so it's, your thoughts you on know, one again, it's it's it, the, I mean, it's interesting just again, it's so close again, which I guess is what should, we should expect. Um, and it just to me, even if Ben McAdams loses, it still shows the really strong appeal that McAdams has as a Democrat in this state. And that if you go back to 2016, this is a race. This is a seat. This is a district that Mia Love won very convincingly um, against a different different Owens. Uh, Doug, Doug Owens, Owens in yeah. 2016. She won by by what 10, 15 points, which is about what we typically expect out of that district um, in terms of typical voter behavior between Democrats and Republicans. And McAdams has this appeal where he can get some Republicans to vote for him, where he can get independents to vote for him. That Democrats in the state of Utah should pay attention to whether he wins or loses, because it may be a model for them in terms of finding candidates that can be more competitive in this state. Amy, uh, we, we, you and I both watched this, and uh, we, mm -hmm. to, to be uh, uh, transparent, we know Ben McAdams, and we've worked yeah, with him. Yeah, we, we, we uh, helped him produce his podcast. That's and, right. Uh, uh, Washington is still on our website, and I think it's a really great podcast because it takes you inside governing. Um, but what, what I found compelling about this is we all say uh, we want moderate candidates that work across the aisle that are reasonable that are middle of the road politically um and uh you know that are that have integrity and ben mcadams checks all those boxes right um and so you have burgess owens 
who is a more extreme Republican. And now he's not going to want to, you know, work across the aisle. He's not going to compromise on some of the things that that McAdams did. And I just wonder sometimes if what we say we want and then what we vote, we, you know, what, what, what we say with our votes is not in alignment and, and what that says about us as um, an electorate. You know, I, I, having had Burgess Owens on our show, you know, he's, he's not a bad guy. However, you know, politically, I couldn't diverge has, more from him he, than yeah, he Yeah, has, he has really extreme political He does. And so we're, you know, people who are even moderate are going to feel very unrepresented by him. And so that's my curiosity is if everyone I'm talking to in CD4 and, and all the stuff we're hearing is we want moderation, we want working across the aisle, we want cooperation, but we don't vote for it, how do we think it happens? So, Jim, do we do we not vote for our best interests oftentimes? <laughs> uh, I mean, specifically to Amy's point, like Americans are funny. They say they want bipartisanship. They say they want compromise. And I mean, to some degree, they're right, because literally those things are necessary to do anything in our political system. But what Americans often mean, and there's a good amount of research on this, that what they mean when they say that is they want the other side to go along with what they want so that you get bipartisanship because the other party supports the thing that you want to do and you get compromised because they compromised, not because you compromised. So people want to see it, but they also want to get what they want policy-wise. And it creates this situation where when you have somebody, when you finally have someone like Ben McAdams who really is kind of positioning himself as middle of the road as a congressperson and willing to compromise with both, work both sides and compromise in about every way you can imagine, it isn't, people aren't satisfied because it isn't really what they thought that was going to mean. And I often wonder, you know, we, I feel like we get the, 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 the government we deserve because like you said, uh, if, if we espouse one thing and then vote another way, then that's obviously what we wanted. Our actions showed what we wanted. Unfortunately though, it only continues the cycle of uh, what, we, what we often consider uh, just, you know. Futility. Futility <laughs> and uh, it, it, that, that we, this gridlock that we, we, we so uh, fervently say we, we're tired of, but yet we continue to vote in a way that uh, also continues the gridlock. Hey, Jim, I know you have to go, but I have, if you have time, I want, wondered what you thought would happen if we hadn't had coronavirus, if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic election-wise. In terms of like the presidential race? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. I think I think it would have been similar. Like you know, you have some. If you want to get really political sciency about it, you can put together these these prediction models that like don't take into account things like pandemics and whatnot. And Trump ended up losing by about as much as you would have predicted in February, um, based on those types of models. He was already an underdog. And maybe the, the pandemic helped Biden even a little bit more get over the top. But it wasn't like he was already in a strong position to win re-election at that point because he was already fairly unpopular. Listen, I, I want to say oh, we're going to run out of time right here. I want to say thank you to Jim Curry, political science professor at the University of Utah and Ann Dent, a political consultant here in Salt Lake. Uh, thank you very much for what I've been waiting to have <laughs> this conversation for so long. And uh, I, I appreciate uh, your thoughts on, on, on all of these matters. Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at voramed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. Check out our Facebook page and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast in all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. 
We love to get your feedback and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee along with Amy Donaldson. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.